0: where my handle is at Hitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode 89, Wild Turkey Diseases with Dr. Heather Fenton. And I am your host and the guy who is waging war on the squirrels and chipmunks at my house. So yesterday morning, I woke up bright and early, walked into the kitchen, looked out of the kitchen window into the backyard, and I see a squirrel enjoying one of my green tomatoes. Well, I can be selfish at times, especially when I did not plant enough tomatoes for the squirrels and for me. I didn't even plan enough for the deer and for me. Last year, the deer completely ate me out of the tomato gardening business in my backyard. So I thought I had them figured out this year and I put some mesh around my tomato cages. And it's kept the deer from eating my tomatoes, but it doesn't seem to be working on the squirrels. So I dug out my two Havahart traps and I'll just say there's a neighborhood about a mile away from my house. That's getting a lot of new neighbors. Since we are 251 days, 11 hours, 50 minutes, and 50 seconds away from opening day of turkey season in the state of Alabama, I have to do something to keep myself occupied. I hope all of you guys had an awesome 4th of July this past week and were able to spend some time with friends and family and relax a little bit and enjoy some outdoor activities. I had a great time myself and It's amazing how quickly the three-day holiday weekends fly by. Tuesday was a rude awakening to get back to work after a fun three days off. So on this week's show, I'm covering a very interesting topic. I'm talking about wild turkey diseases with Dr. Heather Fenton with the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study in Athens, Georgia. The Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study is kind of a mouthful. And because of that, the people at the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study have shortened that name to squidus. So you may hear me refer to squidus a time or two during this intro and outro. You know, fortunately for most of us lovers of wild turkeys, we have flocks of healthy turkeys. We may not have the population in some areas that we did 10, 15, 20 years ago. But the turkeys that we have are healthy turkeys. And even though we have these flocks of healthy turkeys, that does not mean that we will not come across a turkey that is diseased. Now, diagnosing the diseases and examining the turkeys should be left up to the experts, like Dr. Fenton. And We hunters need to know a little about these diseases, what the visible symptoms of the diseases are, and what to do if we run across what we think is a diseased bird. And that is exactly what we're covering in today's show. So let's get right into today's interview with Dr. Heather Fenton with Squidus. And I will see you guys on the other side. Hey everybody, I am excited to tell you that I have on the line with me today Heather Fenton. And she is with the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study. And to give you a little bit more detail on that, she's going to give us much more detail on that, but to give us a little more detail that, is located within the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Georgia. And Heather, I am excited to have you on the line today. We're gonna talk about some diseases that affect wild turkeys. And I really appreciate you joining us. So tell us, how are you? And I've already spilled the beans, but where are you?
1: Excellent, I'm really happy to be here today. So I'm located in Athens, Georgia, on campus at the University of Georgia.
0: Good deal. Well. As an Alabama boy, I will say go Bulldogs, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: so we'll just leave it at that. Yep. You guys stole our defensive coordinator for COACH, but I can deal with it. All right, so tell us a little bit about yourself and the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study. And that's a mouthful. It is, yeah. I know you didn't pick so the we, name.
1: we tend to shorten it and refer to it as what it is for short. Okay. So I'm a veterinary pathologist that specializes in the diagnosis of diseases of wildlife. So I'm originally from Canada actually and I received all my training in Canada through the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative. So that's an organization that was based on the SquidIS model. So SquidIS, as you mentioned, stands for the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study, it was founded in nineteen fifty seven and it was one of the first wildlife health cooperatives. So mm-hmm. the reason that it was founded was in response to concerns regarding a disease of deer that was causing a lot of mortality. And this turned out later on to be discovered as the disease, hemorrhagic disease, of deer. And then yeah. SQUIDIS has since then become involved in research and diagnostics on a number of wildlife disease issues. So we exist as a group with 19 state agency men, members and several federal agency partners. So we work because of this large number of cooperators and we perform morbidity and mortality investigations for state and federal agencies focusing on the southeastern United States and then we also have these ongoing research pro- programs on wildlife diseases such as our hemorrhagic disease program which is still ongoing and it has been since the, the 50s, avian influenza and then a number of other wildlife health issues.
0: Okay. and. Really, I guess most of the diseases that we see in wildlife, and and I'm talking about species that are primarily east of the Mississippi, Mm -hmm. right now there's really not a whole lot of difference between the diseases that are affecting animals in the north and diseases that are affecting animals in the south, is there?
1: Well, there's some regional differences. It it depends on what species, I guess, you're referring to.
0: So, squidus is studying diseases that affect animals, wild animals, in the southeast primarily, but there's really, and you said it already, there are some diseases that affect animals in the southeast that are not necessarily affecting animals in the northeast or vice versa, but there's not very many of those, is there? Even within the different wildlife species,
1: yeah, I mean, in general, there's geographical factors that are involved in whether or not a disease manifests. And that's because there's what we refer to in the wildlife health community as this epidemiological triad. And so when you're referring to a disease, you're referring to something that there's some sort of negative impact on the animal. So, mm-hmm. And it's usually that negative impact comes to be because of multiple interactions between the host itself. So sometimes there's genetic factors in the host, the immune status of the host. So sometimes we'll see some conditions in younger animals that we don't see in older animals. Animals. And then the environment, as I said before, so there's a large number of parasites and other organisms where their life cycle is very responsive to specific environmental conditions. And right. then also those conditions can, can affect the nutritional condition of the host and, and subsequently their immune status. Um, and then there's the pathogen themselves. And sometimes there's a variability in virulence between different pathogens. And sometimes we see, we see very different manifestations. Even in hemorrhagic disease, we see different manifestations in the cells than we do in other, other parts of the country. So often in the Northeast with that particular condition, there's more severe outbreaks that are noticed in areas where the deer have not necessarily been exposed to these viruses before, whereas in the Southeast, sometimes where they've been, the deer have been exposed to this particular virus before, they develop immunity and they don't necessarily develop the acute sin- syndrome, but they'll sometimes develop a, a chronic or a very different disease. So it's very hard to just overgeneralize and, and right. to, I guess, there's definitely different pathogens in, in different species throughout the United States and North America, and, the, and I guess globally. But then often there's a number of very similar issues that I think different wildlife agencies and different wildlife health professionals like myself deal with, even if even if the pathogens are, and sometimes the species are a little bit different.
0: Okay. All right. So that's pretty interesting, and I guess something I didn't think about. And There's so many different factors that go into the diseases and just what you were saying, the host and the pathogen itself, and that's all pretty neat stuff. And I don't want to get bogged down a whole lot with the deer, even though, like I said, most of the people listening to the show do deer hunt, but the show is about wild turkeys. And so I want to talk about some of the most common diseases that affect wild turkeys in the U.S. and I was pointed to you as being the expert on this and I have no doubt after talking to you a couple of times that that's the case, so what are some of the most common diseases that affect wild turkeys in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, I guess I wouldn't necessarily consider myself be an expert on wild turkey disease, but we, we definitely see quite a few turkeys uh, at GWTIS. In my experience, the most common condition that we see are skin diseases, so usually nodular lesions on the unfeathered skin of the head and the legs, and the most mm-hmm. common of these is avian pox. I don't know if you've seen that before.
0: I've seen pictures of it. It looks pretty nasty.
1: Yeah, so there's there are these big sort of raised yellow, Low, crusty lesions that just look like big nodules, usually all over the face. They can also extend into the oral cavity, they can be covering the eyes and the ears, and then sometimes they'll extend right down into the windpipe and other parts of the upper respiratory tract. So, this disease is caused by a virus that's vectored by mosquitoes. So the, the little crusty material itself can, can also be considered infectious. So if two animals are close together, they could potentially get infected if there's some sort of sharing of that material. But otherwise, it's usually from, from viral vector transmission, so that's usually mosquitoes.
0: Okay. How deadly is avian pox? turkeys.
1: Yeah, that's a good question because most of the, the submissions that we get actually are because people have noticed that these these animals have these very they're they're noticeable. They're an eye sore and then it looks like those really severely affected turkeys are are having a hard time getting around. Sometimes they'll act like they're almost blind and that's often when when the lesions are so bad they're covering their eyes. Sometimes they'll be very very skinny because they have a hard time feeding with all these, you know, sores in their mouth and their especially upper respiratory and upper uh, gastrointestinal tract. So, it's definitely what we see as the most common diagnosis. And the reason that they are not making it probably is because of either starvation or there being someone is, is noticing that they have these lesions and then, and then they're subsequently dispatched and then sent to us. So it's, yeah. it's hard for me to say, oh, it, you know, this many of cases actually succumb to this lesion because with this particular disease, some of these animals that are not as severely affected can actually get over it. And there might, there might be some other factors like I was talking about before. So maybe if they're not in the best nutritional condition from the get-go, they're going to be more susceptible to this disease and then maybe they won't necessarily recover.
0: Okay. And I would imagine there's probably a few of those, if their vision is affected, there's a few of them that are being removed from the population by predators and that type of thing as well that we never even know about.
1: That's right. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. All right. So just because we see a turkey that's acting a little unusual that we think may have avian pox, is that, do you think, is necessarily a reason to try to dispatch that animal?
1: Or I, I think it's, or it's hard to think? say, and it's probably best dealt with on a case-by-case basis. I would probably recommend getting in touch with the the regional state wildlife agency folks, yeah. and definitely, if, I mean, if that animal is looks like its its welfare is probably compromised because you know it's in poor shape and it's not the lesions are very severe and it, it's not having an easy time getting around, then then certainly looking into other options is probably the way to go. So I, I will also mention that the skin lesions from avian pox look very similar to the skin lesions of a condition called lymphoproliferative disease. And this disease is much less common than avian pox, but it's a newer disease that was newly described in 2009 by some mm-hmm. other folks at Squidus. And It's associated with this retrovirus called lymphoproliferative disease virus and we we know very little about it. And it turns out that this virus is, is pretty prevalent in wild turkeys, so there's there's some newer papers out there that have done extensive sampling of hunter-harvested turkey material and found that infection with this retrovirus is really common but disease is, is rare, so another reason for, for sampling or at least going out and getting any really severely diseased turkeys to a diagnostic lab is so that we can hopefully better understand some of these diseases that we don't know as much about, like lymphoproliferative disease for okay. one. So Although it's, it's extremely rare, if you, if you look at the overall numbers, uh, the percentage of animals that are actually getting disease with infoproliferative diseases is... Around like between one and five percent of all of the turkeys that we're seeing, so it's not it's not a major cause of mortality, but it, it's something that we think is worth looking into because it, the disease that it that happens is very similar to some other what happens in some other species and it, including humans. So we're sort of interested in in trying to better understand these different disease dynamics, I guess, in wild turkey populations.
0: Okay, is the cause of lymphoproliferative disease? Did I say that correctly?
1: Yeah, you did. Excellent.
0: All right is the cause of that the same as avian pox and mosquitoes and the transmission that way is, is there enough known about it yet
1: Yeah we we basically just don't we don't know so okay. that's been you know proposed as potential method of transmission but but even we're not even totally we don't know all the dynamics to to understand this disease we just think that it's associated with this this retrovirus
0: Okay so to go back to avian pox And I may be asking a question that there is not an answer to, but how common is Avian pox. Is that? I mean, is there a way to say that a wild turkey has X percentage of a chance of getting the disease?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't think we have an answer to that. But what I can tell you is that about 30%, so a third of the wild turkey submissions that that we get at the at Squidus, which is you know 600 to 700 wild turkeys over a 30 to 40 year period, we find skin lesions in them, and then the majority of those about 60% of those or 70% of those have avian pox as the cause of the skin lesions. Um, okay. And this has been summarized in a, a recent paper that just came out in the Journal of Wildlife Diseases by Betsy Elsmore. So... In terms of you know the risk of developing avian pox, so it, just for any wild turkey, I don't think anyone has has quantitatively determined that. And then I think you also have to remember what we are getting at the disease study is a sample of of the di- all diseased animals. So so that's probably not representative of the entire population of wild turkeys. But it's okay. it's our opportunity to investigate pathogens and disease con- conditions of wild turkeys. And th- so in terms of you know someone putting on a radio transmitter on a bunch of poles and then finding out how many of those get avian pox. I'm I'm not aware that that specifically has been looked at. But it is definitely, from our perspective, it's the most common reason why turkeys end up with us is because they have severe infections and then severe lesions from avian pox.
0: Okay. Is there any risk of the transmission of avian pox to humans?
1: No. So that's a good question too. And the diff- there's different strains of this avian pox virus and the strains tend to be very specific or relatively specific to specific taxa. So there hasn't been a case of, of avian pox in humans to my knowledge.
0: Okay. So if we do happen to harvest a bird that we suspect has some sort of a disease, you still would probably recommend that we take precaution to avoid that?
1: Sure. Well, with any wild animal, there's, there's general recommendations that goes across the board, regardless of what species you're dealing with, but some basic practices such as using gloves, washing your hands really well, and then also, you know, especially before eating, just making sure that you're not smoking or eating while you're you're trimming out carcasses, or working with the guts and that sort of thing. So that's basic practices. And then also cooking the meat to a certain temperature is gonna decrease any risks of potential transmission of of anything, you know, that might cause harm to humans. And those practices are are pretty basic basic but they're they're general across the board for for dealing with wild game or wild animals in general.
0: Yeah, okay. Okay, so we talked about avian pox, we talked about lymphoproliferative disease, and I have to slow down every time I say that. What other diseases are there that affect wild turkeys?
1: So one that we get a lot of questions about is blackhead. I'm sure you've heard of it before. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of a misnomer because it, it was named because of some, it's essentially cyanosis or lack of blood supply to the, the comb in the head, which is super rare with this condition, but for some reason that's, that's how it got it named but this is caused by a protozoan parasite called Histomonas meleagridis so this is a it's a protozoan and it has a really interesting life cycle so it can be spread just by itself, so direct transmission, so it, it goes through the, the feces of the turkey and then can infect another turkey. But it can also be spread with the help of these roundworms, so nematodes, they're Heteracus gallinarum, and, and then occasionally an earthworm can be involved in the life cycle. So these, these protozoan parasites kind of essentially hitch a ride on these nematodes and use the nematode life cycle for transmission. So this is a, par, a disease that is more commonly associated with backyard flocks or backyard poultry, And and then occasionally we see a few in wild turkeys, but we don't see it that often. And what happens is that the protozoa is the one that's responsible for the extensive damage, but the nematode is how the protozoa is able to get around because the the nematode eggs are much more resistant in the environment and the protozoa can sort of just hang out in in the nematode eggs and then be transmitted to other hosts. So what happens when the birds become infected is, is that they get extensive damage in the liver, and they can develop these bullseye-type lesions, which some if people have been involved in, in working up turkeys before, then they, they might have come, come across these lesions because they're, they're quite striking. And we, don't, we really don't see that often, but it's certainly something that we get a lot of questions about. And so this... Because of the life cycle of the nematode, some sort of environmental process as as part of the transmission is usually involved. And then what people like to ask is about chicken litter in general and... Because the, the parasite has a certain amount of time that it, it takes in the host to, to develop, what people have looked at specifically is whether or not chicken litter from broilers uh, would be as, as much of a risk as chicken litter from broiler breeders. And so the idea is that the parasite doesn't complete its total life cycle in, in a broiler because those, those birds aren't living necessarily as long as the broiler breeders, and the so essentially, the litter from broiler breeders would be more of a risk than litter from broilers. If if that's going to be, you know, bred on onto the environment where there's going to be wild turkeys, so sort of feeding on that group on that area. So, right. although we, we don't necessarily see a lot of it, some of the recommendations that have come out over the years is that if if you're going to use chicken litter, then using some from broilers would, would be recommended more than, than using them from, from older animals because in the older animals are more likely, the parasite is more likely to have completed its life cycle than in the younger animals, if that makes sense. Yeah.
0: So, I guess I'm, I'm going to ask this question and, and knowing that every wild turkey disease is different, but, and I, I'm probably going to state something that's fairly obvious, I think, at least I hope that I am, and that is that the physical condition of the animal that gets this disease is probably very important in determining whether the animal is going to survive any kind of a a disease outbreak. So if you have a healthy turkey or a healthy deer that is infected by a disease that animal stands a better chance of surviving the disease than one that's probably older or one that's probably younger is that safe to say
1: I, I think in terms of a generalization that's that's kind of what we're getting at but then you also have to remember that there are some pathogens that are just really virulent so okay. that any even you know a healthy deer, Especially, it has to do a little bit with, in some diseases, and this varies by, you know, a specific pathogen that that animal is exposed to, but in some cases, it has to do with whether or not that animal either has been exposed to that particular pathogen before, so that they've developed some sort of immune response or antibodies to it, and then sometimes that can actually come from the mother as well. So sometimes there is there is something to be said about maternal antibodies, and so, right. but in general, like you said, the, the animal that's got the, the better chance is the one that's in better control.
0: Okay. And so you, you really kind of touched on my question that I was going to ask that was related to that statement. And that is, you know, if there is an ability for wild turkeys to develop immunity to these diseases and I mean, I don't know if there's been any kind of a study done on that yet, but it, it seems like it would make sense if there hasn't been a study of just what you said. If the turkey's been exposed to a weaker strain of it or if the mother had the disease and survived it, then some of that would pass on to the, the young or, you know, there would still be some sort of a resistance that's built up to it. So that, But has there been any kind of a definitive study done on that? that you know of? Yeah,
1: that's a really good question. To my knowledge, not so much. So there is more in the domestic poultry literature, for sure, especially with specific different pathogens. So the domestic turkeys tend to be affected by different pathogens than some of the wild turkeys do. Sometimes there's an overlap, but in general, like I said, with avian pox, we do know that if an animal has been exposed to avian pox in the past, then it's more likely to survive a subsequent infection, because, and this is presumably from, from immune response. But there's still not a lot understood about, about how that works. And then we really don't know that much about lymphoproliferative disease at all. So no one has really looked, looked into the, the role of the immune system in that disease. And then with blackhead, to my knowledge, there, there hasn't been that much done. The types of parasites involved tend to not necessarily respond that well to immunity because the immune system responds a little bit differently to nematodes and, and protozoa. But that being said, it's certainly in similar organ, organisms in other species. It's an area where a lot of people have, have looked into trying to figure out different ways to, to essentially vaccinate for this pathogen. I will say in wild turkeys in general, there hasn't really been any proof that any diseases are having population level impacts. And there, yep. and it may be an area that probably, you know we could probably do a little bit more in terms of studying, but it seems like we, we find a certain amount of pathogens and we find some diseases that are affecting wild turkeys, but they're not necessarily having an impact at the population level. And because of that, then we're not as concerned about the populations of these wild turkeys. Okay. But, you know, you raise a, a good point. I think it's it's something that probably at this point in time there doesn't seem to be a lot of, of research focus in that area, but maybe in the future looking into immune response is, is something that, that would be very interesting and it's certainly something that has been done in, on the domestic poultry side of things.
0: Yeah. We need to pass some ideas to these graduate students, do <laughs> That's <we>? right,
1: Yeah. <laughs> So
0: are there, I guess, again, I may be asking a question where there's not enough information to answer it, but and if there is, then I apologize. I'm just going to keep asking questions because I'm curious about this stuff. So is there any evidence that shows that certain areas within the country that these diseases are more prevalent than other areas in the countries? So, I mean, if, if to me, it seems like if the avian pox is, I guess, transmitted by mosquitoes, the areas where you have longer summers and you have more time and those mosquitoes are active, it seems like that would be areas where these diseases would be more prevalent. And then, you know, to kind of, I guess, add on to that, coastal regions, you know, regions where there's swamps and constant water supply for mosquitoes to breed and, and live seem like they would carry avian pox yeah, no, I, so I
1: think those are really great ideas. I think we we don't necessarily know the answers to those questions because of the nature of you know retrospective studies and wildlife health surveillance, uh, sort of just passive surveillance, which is what yeah. what Squidus does. So when there's a sick or a dead turkey, um, then it, it comes to someone like Squidus, and there's a number of groups in the United States uh, that do very similar things. So because of the nature of that sampling method, it's really biased. So it means that, you know, there's there's sometimes turkey biologists that are really, really keen and really excited about disease. And so sometimes they'll they'll submit more than other states and so that's sort of biasing our sample it doesn't mean that turkeys from that particular state are more diseased than others it just means that you know the the person in that group is is
0: more interested interested and
1: and so we get those more submissions so that's that's why it's it's something that's really difficult studying anything in the wild is very difficult because there's so many extra factors involved and it's such a different environment than studying something in the laboratory so we have these additional challenges when we're trying to, to make larger scale conclusions from, from things. And we're often not really able to do that. So that has been certainly one of, one of the hypotheses is that, yeah, we should probably be seeing more avian pox in areas where there's more mosquitoes and it should be associated with wet years. And there's, there's some evidence that there might be some association with more wet years, but there, there hasn't really been a, a large scale study that has looked at that specifically, corresponding environmental factors like you had mentioned with, you know, the incidence of of avian pox.
0: Yeah, okay. And if I keep asking questions like that, just keep
1: (laughs) keep telling me, yeah, "Yeah,
0: there's not been enough yet. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, and I, I can imagine that's probably one of the reasons why there have been so few studies on the diseases and areas where they're more prevalent and that type of thing on wild animals is because it is so hard to study them and to determine okay this wild animal has avian pox and so we're going to put a collar on it and follow it and observe it and everything else i would imagine it's not impossible but very very difficult and so it's probably one reason why there haven't been as many studies done on that kind of uh, thing isn't it
1: yes and there's other challenges but certainly Studying, there's a lot of people that are interested in wildlife diseases and wildlife health, and it seems to be a growing field. So hopefully, in in the future, we'll be seeing more integration of ecology and wildlife health, epidemiology, and then looking. Also, we need we need virologists and bacteriologists, and so it's it's a really it's an opportunity for us to get really into this one health concept where there's a lot of collaboration between a number of specialties, but it it is certainly logistically pretty challenging.
0: Yeah, well, and then there's always the money part of it too.
1: That's right, yeah.
0: Okay, so is Blackhead, is there a risk of that being transmitted to humans at all?
1: No. So that's, that's a good question. So the majority of wild turkey pathogens are not necessarily transmissible, transmissible to humans. So blackhead hasn't been shown to cause disease in humans. Neither has lymphoproliferative disease virus or even pox virus. So that's good. Okay. There are, But as I say that, as I sort of mentioned before, that any wild animal is potentially, there's, we don't know what, what pathogens any wild animal might have. So it's always a good idea to still use you know, basic personal protective equipment like using gloves and sure. making sure that you wash your hands really well if you're dealing with any sort of, especially a sick or dead animal, but also you know just if you're working with meat. So one thing that I will mention is that any animal and wild turkeys are no exception can be shedding salmonella. So they can have salmonella and they can it might not necessarily cause disease in that bird, but there, there's no way of knowing that without specifically culturing it. So salmonella is something that turkeys can carry. So so that's one thing to, you know, just be careful with all of the, there's lots of bacteria associated with gastrointestinal tracts, period. And so that's, that's why when you're, you're, that's why we recommend people cook their meat really well and then nice. wash their hands. And there are a couple other viral pathogens that I will mention. So they're mosquito-borne, but West Nile virus and Eastern equine encephalitis uh, have both been diagnosed in wild turkeys. And we, we have seen these. It'll be animals that are usually found dead without clinical signs, or they'll have a very short period of clinical signs where they're just, they don't seem to be acting right, they're not afraid of humans, and, and then they're found, found dead pretty shortly after. So we have had a few cases of those, and those can both cause disease in humans. So humans probably are getting exposed to these viruses from mosquitoes as well. So it's a good idea if you're going to be out in the woods to just be, be safe using, you know, longer pants, long sleeves. If you're going to be around areas where there's lots of ticks, tucking your pants into your socks is a good practice, using mosquito right. repellent. So these are sort of basic safety features if you're going to be out in the woods. But I, I would mention those two specifically, and it. It's a reason if there's turkey biologists that are listening to this, that if they see an animal, any animal that died from an un- unknown reason, it's just a good idea to use basic precautions. So you're going to want to use gloves. And you're, when you're packaging that animal, if you're going to send it to a wildlife disease diagnostic laboratory, you want to double bag it in sturdy bags that aren't going to rip and that sort of thing. So be aware that those, those not, they're not very common, but it's something that you know you're not going to necessarily know that that animal's infected with anything until much much later on. So it's a good idea to, to just get in the habit of being safe.
0: Yeah. So you're telling me then that my idea of serving up some turkey sushi to my family this year is probably not a good idea?
1: Yeah, I recommend cooking meat very well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, I'm going to listen to your advice then. You're Excellent. much more educated on that than I am. <laughs> okay. So are those... The diseases that we've talked about are those the main diseases that we're likely to see in wild turkeys. Are there any others that we uh, haven't are the, talked about? Those are the
1: the main ones that come to mind. We often find a number of different parasites that don't necessarily cause disease in wild turkeys, and so those are things like roundworms and tapeworms. And and you might right. actually find these more often if you're gonna you're doing a, a turkey turkey necropsy and you're you're actually going through the guts and that sort of thing. We have been able to find a number of different bacterial infections. They're not very common either, but we, we do see. Different bacteria associated with disease in wild turkeys, and I think in those instances maybe the nutritional condition of the animal might have something to do with it. And then also there's, they might be co-infected with other things. So we'll we'll find a handful of of those kinds of cases, but in in general. Really, avian pox is the most common, and we'll often find skin lesions where it's just a bacterial dermatitis, so there might have been some trauma associated with either attempted predation or fighting or um, some sort of, I mean, sometimes I'm sure they get hit by cars uh, and that sort of thing. So trauma in general is very common in any wild species as a cause of morbidity and mortality, but I, I think we've probably covered the ones that are the most important for wild turkeys as well as people. And in general there there's probably something you know new to be discovered i guess all the time and so we're really grateful to have people out in, in the field that will actually you know give us a call and contact us when they find an animal that's that's maybe acting a little bit unusual or if they they find carcasses and it doesn't they can't really figure out exactly what what went on
0: yeah and that's one of the questions that i have for you as well if we do encounter a turkey that we see is not acting right or maybe is deceased that shows no sign of a predator attack or anything like that. And we suspect that that animal may be diseased. What should we do yeah. at that point? Obviously, we want to protect ourselves.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: We do anything, but
1: so you want to be safe about it. But I would get in contact with your local state wildlife agency. So there's a number of wildlife health groups across the country. So there's Squidis for the southeast. There's a northeastern group. There's the National Wildlife Health Center. There's also a number of really excited wildlife health professionals, you know, all over the country. There's a big group in California. There's a number of people in Colorado. So we, we sort of all, all know each other, but certainly your, your local wildlife agency probably has a relationship with, with one of those specific groups. So get in touch with them first, and then they can direct you on, on what laboratory the carcass should be sent to. I would recommend, as I said before, using gloves. And then usually we recommend double bagging a carcass. So either two, is depending on the size of the carcass, two big Ziploc bags or two uh, big garbage bags that are they're fairly durable. And then depending on when, found, usually carcasses should be shipped within 46 hours, but they can also often be frozen and then shipped at a later date. So just get in contact with your state wildlife agency folks. If it happens to be on a refuge, then there should be some federal refuge folks that that you can get in touch with as well. But certainly they they need to be involved in the process because that's often where the funding is associated with.
0: Right. Okay. So freezing the animal would not necessarily affect the testing and
1: it can affect, use the okay. Yeah, so it can affect some things, but we also understand logistics and, you know, like especially if it's Friday before the July 4th weekend or something like that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's better
1: to be frozen and then shipped at a later date. But if, if you can get it to this the Wildlife Health Center within you know, one or two days, then it's probably better to just refrigerate or keep it on the ice packs. But if it's going to be a little bit longer than that, then freezing is okay. We're still able to to do a number of tests on carcasses that have been frozen first. Um, It's not necessarily as ideal, but but certainly we, we appreciate different logistical challenges, and we want to work with folks in in terms of getting these animals investigated.
0: Right. Okay. Is there anything that we as hunters can do to discourage the spread of any of the diseases in our wild turkeys?
1: I think in general, it's a good idea to, you know, make sure that you're aware of where the offal is going and where you just make sure that you know transporting live or dead animals from any region you're transporting the flora and fauna associated with them so just keep that in mind and making sure that you know if you're dressing out a carcass and you're using gloves and you're disinfecting the surfaces after you're done then that can be a a good help for one thing and just being the eyes and ears in the field looking for diseases or animals that are you know maybe not not doing that great so by doing that you're acting as a surveillance tool for uh, for those of us who are interested in wildlife health surveillance and we're very appreciative of that but yeah in, in general we should all be aware that anytime you you move any animal, whether it be domestic or wild, that you're moving all of the... Sometimes they're not, even, they're not necessarily pathogenic in that species, but sometimes it can be pathogenic in a, in a different species. So just keep that in mind. Usually those, any, any kinds of translocation should really be done with a thorough risk assessment and probably be done by professionals that, are, that have worked with those animals for, for a long time and understand the, right. the risks. And then there's also, if we can talk about artificial feeding for a second. So we know yes. that artificial feeding can increase the densities of species, and then this just encourages opportunities for transmission of density dependent diseases. So people should also be aware that when they're they're artificially feeding animals, they're potentially increasing the risks of transmission for different pathogens.
0: Okay. Is that also the case in using manure to fertilize food plots and things like that?
1: So that's where we were getting at the the chicken the litter yeah. conversation. Yeah. So in general, there's, there's different treatments, and I'm not fully versed in this subject, but okay. not a number of treatments of manure are possible, and many of those will get rid of a number of pathogens. And even just exposure to UV light can actually um, sort of – it can – inactivate a number of, of pathogens. So okay. there hasn't really been extensive studies on whether or not these manure is going to be a risk for wild turkeys. But as I said before, if it's from birds or domestic poultry of a younger age group, then that specific type of manure might, is probably less of a risk for diseases like blackheads than manure from older animals. So okay. it's in general, if you're going to use it, then You know, make sure you're using it from groups from a a more young age class. But it's important to remember that transmission of pathogens really can go both ways. So from domestic birds to wild birds, but then also from wild birds back to domestic poultry. So one of the best ways to make sure that there isn't transmission of pathogens is that biosecurity is maintained and then for hunters to respect the the biosecurity of the domestic poultry operations. So sometimes different operations will have rules, such as you can't necessarily have gone hunting, duck hunting hunting or turkey hunting, you know, within a certain period of time before you can actually visit a poultry operation. So respecting the rules in terms of mm-hmm. biosecurity, not using the same boots where you went hunting in to interact with domestic poultry, uh, those kinds of things. And then right. um, from the domestic side of things, just make sh- ensuring that they're enforcing the rules and then and providing things like foot baths and, you know, different clothing and equipment for use in in domestic poultry operations.
0: Okay, that's pretty interesting. Things that if you're not around a poultry farm, you don't even think about.
1: Right, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you think that we turkey hunters should know about diseases, that affect the wild turkeys that we haven't covered or that we need to know before we go back into the woods this fall or this spring?
1: Nothing specifically comes to mind. I think I just wanted to mention that people like myself who are really interested in diseases of wild animals really appreciate that sportsmen and women are out in the field and they're being our our eyes and ears for wildlife health surveillance. So we really appreciate folks that are, are engaged and they are getting a hold of, of their wildlife agencies when they, they find something unusual. Because what we are doing is trying to document and monitor diseases that are important for conservation of wild animals, domestic animal health, so is even including livestock and then human health. So I just wanted to thank you and your listeners for all the work that you do for wildlife health surveillance and conservation.
0: Well, and that goes both ways. We want to thank you and your colleagues as well for what you guys do, because without you, we wouldn't know about these diseases that affect birds and wouldn't know what to what to do when we run across one. And so I feel like it's important that we have each other and that we work together and do what we can to help one another out. And so I appreciate what you and your colleagues do at Squidus.
1: Well, thank you very much.
0: Yeah. So... Just out of curiosity's sake, and it may be a question you don't know the answer to, and if if so, that's fine, but how does squidus get its funding, because it is a cooperative. So how does the money come to Squidus?
1: Yeah, so it comes from the different agencies that support us. So we have 19 member state wildlife agency members, and then a number of federal agencies, so U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and we we work on grants from the USDA as well. So essentially that each group sort of puts in a certain amount of money, and then we're able to do our diagnostic testing and then focus on specific research projects. And then a number of our researchers also apply for for external grants, like NIH and other groups for a specific research interest.
0: Okay. So that's a question that I typically ask of most biologists, or I guess really you're the first veterinary doctor that I've had on the show. And I ask that because what you're telling me in a roundabout way is our hunting license dollars right. are going and our tax dollars yep. are going to fund you guys. And so, you know, that I, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I like paying a tax, Where I know exactly where it's going, Mm -hmm. and my hunting license is a tax, and I know where that money is going. My income tax that I pay, I don't know where that's going. We're not even going to talk about that because it gets me fired up. But the hunting license dollars are being put to good work to study the animals that we hunt and to help us to have more of those animals, and that's those are very important dollars. So. I appreciate you answering that question because I was curious to know. I kind of suspected that that was the case, but I was curious to know it. So I appreciate that. No,
1: well, no. Thank you for pointing that out.
0: Well, Heather, thank you very much for taking time out of your quote unquote Monday, even though it's a Tuesday mm-hmm. and I appreciate your time and very much appreciate your sharing your knowledge of wild turkey diseases with me and with the listeners as well. And Appreciate your being on the show.
1: Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. Well, have a wonderful day and a wonderful week, and maybe we'll talk again sometime soon if we can come up with another great topic on diseases.
1: That sounds great. Thank you very much for having me.
0: All right, Heather. Goodbye. Bye. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed today's interview and learned a little something about wild turkey diseases that you did not know. I know that none of us want to encounter a diseased bird. But just like every animal, wild turkeys do get sick and there's a chance that while we're hunting, we may encounter one. Now with that said, if you have encountered a wild turkey that you believe or know was diseased, I'd love to hear from you. So send me an email to andy at com and tell me the short story of the when, the what, and the where. I'd be pretty interested to see how you handled that particular situation where you ran across that diseased wild turkey. So that's all I have for you this week. I would like to ask one favor of you this week. You know normally I ask you for four favors. Since it's summertime we're coming off of a long holiday weekend I'm going to give you a little bit of a break and I'm only going to ask you for one favor. If you learned something in today's show please promote the heck out of it on social media for me. Forward, like, share, retweet, and get the word out about today's show on Facebook and Twitter. If you have your own personal blog and you want to share a link to today's show on your blog, please do so. I'd love that. That'd be awesome. And you never know when I'll return the favor and share a link to your blog. That's it. That's the one favor. It'll take you about 60 seconds to promote it on all of your social networks, and it's a great way to give back to the show. And I want to take a minute to thank Brent Rogers, For the idea for today's show. Brent sent me an email right at about a year ago with several topics for the Turkey Hunter podcast. And doing a show on wild turkey diseases was one of those topics that he recommended. So Brent, thank you very much for your suggestion. I really appreciate that. If you guys have any suggestions you'd like to send to me of topics you would like for me to cover in upcoming episodes, you've got my email address. Send me an email. And I will do everything I can to get that topic covered for you. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I know that you have choices. I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week. And I look forward to seeing you again next week. I've got to go check my traps. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review.